and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Philip Gooding. I'm a project manager and a research affiliate at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University. For this podcast, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. John Lee of Durham University. Dr. Lee is an environmental historian of early modern East Asia, particularly the Korean Peninsula, with transregional interests in comparative histories of pre-industrial forestry, the history of pine, the pre-modern history of the conservation estate, and the long-term environmental legacies of Eurasian empires. His current monograph project is entitled Kingdom of Pines, State Forestry and the Making of Korea, 918 to 1910. And it examines the rise and fall of the longest continuous state forestry system in the world, that of Korea's Chozon dynasty. In this podcast, we'll be discussing two recent article length pieces. First, a state of ranches and forests, the environmental legacy of the Mongol Empire in Korea, which was published in Forces of Nature, New Perspectives on Korean Environments in 2023. The second publication is The Sylvan Local, The Pine Protection Key in Late Chozon Korea, 1700 to 1900, which was published in The Cultivated Forest, People and Woodlands in Asian History in 2022. Dr. Lee, thank you very much for agreeing to this podcast. I just want to start with a very broad question about how you came to this topic. What drew you to forests in the Korean Peninsula? How did you come to study this topic? And what is its significance in the wider fields of Korean history and the history of forests? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. And it's a great pleasure. Well, in terms of uh, your question on what drew me to this topic in the first place, I guess uh, when I was uh, in university as an undergraduate, the book that probably had the biggest influence on me was uh, Kenneth Pomeranz's The Great Divergence. And this, of course, this broader question of why and how East Asia seemed to have fallen behind the West in the 18th century onward. And of course, uh, Pomeranz's book has been hugely influential um, and of course also controversial in some ways. But as a young undergraduate, this question fascinated me, especially because um, my parents are immigrants from Korea who came to the United States um, back in the 1980s. And uh, the narrative I always heard of East Asia was this one of decline and, and um, you know, for China and Korea, humiliation um, going through uh, decades of attacks by foreign powers, um, Japanese, European, and so forth. And so for me in university, reading Pomeranz's book, this question really came to, it really came to the fore. Why did East Asia, this, um, a, a, a part of the world that was so efflorescent in terms of civilizational and cultural uh, outputs and so forth for centuries suddenly seemed to fall behind at this critical period when you see uh, Europe and North America expand across the world in terms of economic and political power. And the answer the I thought could lie in, as Pomeran sort of points to, environmental factors, rather than trying to focus on, you know, Asian culture or Confucianism and so forth, sort of cultural or social factors for so-called backwardness, environmental factors, things like deforestation, floods, famine. This seemed to be a sort of a materialist, non-cultural way to sort of answer this broader question of why East Asia seemed to fall behind. This was extremely attractive to me um, as I was applying to graduate school, thinking about environmental issues as a sort of primary cause of, say, rebellion, political decline, decline in, say, fiscal revenues and so forth in places like China and Korea in the 18th and especially in the 19th century. 
so that's how I initially started getting interested in this topic of seeking this sort of materialist uh, sort of structural explanation for the so-called decline of East Asian civilizations in the 19th century. But then when I got to grad school and I actually started looking at primary sources and my views got overturned. What I found was, especially in the Korean case, was that, no, actually, rather than a narrative of deforestation and environmental decline, actually, what was actually going on was far different. Korea had actually had an immensely sophisticated forestry system that existed since the 13th, 14th centuries, but also lasted to the end of the Joseon dynasty. And what is more, and this is great for any graduate student uh, looking for a dissertation topic, no one had written about this forestry system in English, and very few scholars had written about it in Korean. And so that's what I ended up writing about in graduate school. But you can see sort of the sort of uh, my inner sort of historiographical turn that I took um, going from focusing on environmental degradation and so forth, this sort of um, uh, narrative decline to something, um, I don't want to say necessarily positive, but something far more constructive, focusing on how a particular early modern pre-modern society attempted at least and sustained uh, uh, what we call a system of forest conservation or environmental conservation in a pre-modern era. That's an absolutely fascinating route to the topic. Um, so you cited Pomerantz there, but also in your work, you cite a significant number of environmental historians who work outside Korea. And of course, Pomerantz was working outside Korea too. And I suppose going to the next question then is, uh, where do you situate your work in the broader field of environmental history? Are there particular um, techniques or methods that you find useful from environmental history? And are there any particular critiques, and obviously you critique Pomerantz here, but any particular critiques for the field of environmental history that you think your research on forestry uh, can offer to the field as a whole? That's a great set of questions. Um, I'm going to start with the last one in terms of critiques, because this sort of, I think, opens up um, how I situate myself. So... One, the, the field of environmental history has, of course, expanded greatly since uh, in, the, in the last three years in this era of environmental crisis and so forth. Um, certainly, uh, the environment is a major subject of attention, and this applies to the historical profession as well. But unfortunately, I think a lot of the emphasis has been on modern topics, and understandably so. But environmental history, a lot of it has its origins in the American historical field in particular, which, of course, will have a very modernist bias. Uh, but I think what we also see, and this is where I situate myself, is an increasing number of scholars interested in pre-modern and early modern aspects of environmental history. Rather than focusing on you know, issues such as industrial pollution and so forth, focusing on issues like how did a pre-modern society? How did an early modern bureaucracy understand uh, issues like deforestation and uh, specters of environmental degradation? Uh, what sort of measures could be taken by pre-modern societies, pre-industrial societies, in order to enact sustainable uh, processes of forest conservation and uh, sustainable yields? So, a growing number of scholars, I think, in the past 20 years in particular, have 
started focusing more on pre-modern topics within the environmental historical field. And again, as usual, a lot of these scholars have uh, focused largely on Europe. Um, scholars like Paul Ward, for instance, or Joachim Radkow, um, scholars have focused largely on Germany um, and its uh, particular early modern forestry system. These are scholars who were quite inspirational to me when I was in graduate school. Uh, all scholars like Carl Appune, who's done a great study of forestry, forestry and Renaissance Venice. Um, and in the past 10 years, we've seen more and more scholars um, looking at similar issues within East Asia as well. Ian Miller, uh, who I uh, who is one of the co-editors for the uh, Cultivated Forest volume, and was really instrumental in really pushing that project forward. Uh, he has written an excellent book called Fur and Empire on uh, Forestry in Early Modern China. Uh, Meng Zhang has also worked written a similar book on um, forestry and timber and timber markets in Qing China. But the takeaway from all this is increasingly scholars are interested not just in pre-modern, early modern aspects of environmental history, but also really focusing on forests in particular as a very useful prism for understanding not just environmental change in early modern societies, but the working of pre-modern, early modern societies themselves. Joachim um, Rodkow, uh, the, the German forest historian has a great quote on this. Forests are great to think with. Wood was the sort of fundamental uh, resource of pre-modern times in terms of fuel, in terms of uh, construction material, in terms of raw chemical matter. And thus, fo focusing on wood and forests allows us to not just understand, say, environmental change or statecraft and bureaucracy, but also workaday life, cultural depictions of forests and the environment, um, economic change, uh, fuel usage, and so forth, it becomes an almost a very interesting totalistic way of understanding uh, pre-modern societies and answering various questions related not just environmental history, but economic, social, and cultural history as well. It's absolutely fascinating. I'm going to take that away from this podcast and think about it some more. From my point of view, a lot of this uh, growth in environmental history uh, has been tied to the idea, as you kind of mentioned here, about environmental crisis and the global climate crisis. Uh, one of the things that kind of motivates my own research is thinking about if climate change and environmental crisis has, affects us now, how's climatic variability and how have environmental crises affected our past as well? Um, and I suppose kind of I wondered how, how does your research engage with climatic or other global environmental change over the long term as well? Yeah, no, I'd be curious about your thoughts on this topic as well, because I know you're working on this for your current project. But uh, the issue of climate change, this is fascinating, right? Because certainly it's a very pertinent topic, but I feel that there is an interesting and useful way to approach climate change in pre-modern societies. And then there is a not so useful way. Uh, in terms of the latter uh, approach, what I'm talking about is, um, and I know you don't do this, but there are other you know, older pieces of scholarship that take a very sort of simplistic, more Malthusian approach to climate change in early modern or pre-modern societies, basically, you know, uh, trying to correlate climate crisis or climate change to any sort of civilizational collapse or any sort of rebellion or tax riot anywhere in the world at a given time, which I think is a problematic approach for many reasons. I think it's far more useful to take into account not how susceptible, rather than asking, rather than going into this topic with the presupposition that societies were inherently vulnerable to climate change, we should twist that, we should, we should put that question on its head and ask, how did 
pre-modern societies remain so resilient amidst constantly shifting climates and weather systems and patterns and so forth. Obviously, climatic anomalies like El Nino and La Nina, these have existed for, for millennia. How did various societies deal with these particular anomalies? Um, where were the sort of institutional and social and economic uh, uh, sources of resilience? And so I, I, I think when I approach Korean history and its intersections with climate change, that's the mindset I try to take uh, rather than focusing on uh, rebellions or famines and so forth. Um, I try to focus more on how Koreans were adapting perhaps to certain broader structural issues. So uh, just to give you one example, um, the Little Ice Age certainly uh, affected Korea just like much of the world in the early 17th and mid 17th centuries. In some ways, we do have a lot of evidence, for instance, on diaries uh, uh, through Korean diaries and government records of falling temperatures and so forth, of people wandering, of, of, of a vagrants and wandering the, wandering the roads to Seoul and you know, all sorts of uh, typical uh, images of uh, famine and, uh, and crisis. But the Chosen Dynasty did not fall. There were no major uh, rebellions in this period. In the, uh, there were Manchu invasions. There were certainly uh, political coups and so forth. But society and the economy continued to trudge along, recovered, recovering from Manchu and Japanese invasions in the decades before. And the dynasty lasted to the end of the 19th century, to the beginning of the 20th century. So certainly we can't think of the Little Ice Age as some sort of... Uh, major crisis point, but it was simply in some ways an, 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 one anomaly, um, one climactic anomaly among many that Koreans adapted to. Um, and I think that is the story. If I had to write an article on Little Ice Age in 17th century Korea, that's probably one. It'd be one not of crisis, but one of resilience and adaptation, which, which would be the main sort of narrative I would want to favor, if that makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely, it does. And it's a really uh, interesting and important take, uh, in my opinion. Um, so I want to get more closely, uh, focus more closely on your two articles that we um, mentioned uh, at the outset here. So the two pieces kind of cover a long um, temporal frame uh, from around the 13th century, the time of the Mongol invasions, uh, and uh, to the end of the Chozon dynasty in the early 20th century. And for our listeners, I'm going to kind of um, ask these questions in a kind of a sort of a chronological order so listeners who aren't so familiar with Korean or forestry history uh, will be able to kind of come away with a broad chronology here. So everyone will be, most listeners will be familiar with the Mongol invasions over across, across Eurasia. And I suppose the opening question, the simple question to ask at the beginning here, is how did the Mongol invasions of the 13th century change human relationships with forested areas on the Korean peninsula? Um, how did one environmental management regime seem foreign to native Koreans? And if so, how did this foreignness interplay with or shift environmental attitudes? Right, right. So it's a really interesting question. Um, and one that, you know, could be, uh, sorry, uh, uh, to put it simply, requires more research because we actually know very little about medieval Korean environmental history. In other words, the uh, so before the Chosen Dynasty, we have the Koryo Dynasty, which ruled Korea from 918 to 1392. 
And unfortunately, a lot of the records related to uh, kept by that dynasty uh, were destroyed, uh, partly during the Mongol invasions, also during Red Turban invasions and so forth. So we rely actually a lot of the information we know about medieval Korea relies on records that were compiled uh, in the early Choson era in the 15th century after the dynasty had uh, after the Khoi dynasty had fallen. So this is problematic, of course, you can imagine, because it means that to answer the first part of your question, um, how did the Mongols shift Korean land use patterns? How did the Mongols shift Korean environments? It's hard to definitively say. Um, we know for sure, for instance, that Jeju Island, uh, which was the Mongols' uh, main uh, sort of, you could say, uh, uh, center of operations, especially for, uh, uh, for horse ranching, certainly the Mongols must have completely shifted the ecologies of Jeju. Uh, Jeju was used for some sort of animal, for animal husbandry, of course, um, even before the Mongols, but the Mongols significantly raised the capacity and the sort of... Uh, uh, it was raised the, the the whole level of that operation of, of to thousands, tens of thousands of horses being imported into the island and certainly serving as a sort of major Mongol center of uh, economic and uh, of economic organization. It, to the point where uh, yeah, during, at, at, at the fall, uh, in the last decades of the uh, Yuan dynasty, um, the, the, one of the last Mongol emperors actually had a plan to escape China to Jeju Island actually. Um, so the Mongols had actually been building a little palace on Jeju Island and were planning to escape there as uh, their empire in China was crumbling. Um, but the Koreans uh, heard about this plan and uh, warned the Ming, uh, warned their Chinese allies and the uh, Mongols were not able to uh, go forth with this plan. But sort of an interesting sort of uh, a little tidbit there. So places like Jeju, certainly, the Mongols shifted dramatically. The rest of Korea I think it's hard to say. Uh, we don't know the full extent of Mongol ranching operations in most of Korea. Certainly, they were very interested in the Southwest, uh, where they uh, certainly uh, laid the roots of, I argue in my uh, work, uh, laid the roots of Korea's later uh, early modern forestry system. Uh, the Mongols, of course, are largely interested in the Southwest uh, initially in the 1270s to uh, build ships for their failed invasions of Japan. So certainly, in the Southwest, in places like Jeju, the Mongol influences can be ascertained, certainly were felt. Um, depopulation in those areas as well. Um, the last uh, major holdouts against the Mongols were located in the South. The last Korean holdouts against the Mongols were located in the Southwest on Jeju Island. And again, uh, we read these old records. There are, there, are, there, are, there are sparse records that talk about the immense number of people who died during these uh during this particular aspect, the latter stages of the Mongol invasion. So certainly, uh, if we go by the track record of the Mongols in other parts of Eurasia as well, certainly uh, a significant population drop could be, can be assumed in those particular areas. And the image one gets in our heads um, with a certain lack of records is the Mongols larger placing these uh, depopulated areas with ranches and um, their sort of preferred uh, land use systems. But again, as you can tell by my answer here, a lot of conjecture, uh, not enough sources to really pin down uh, what the medieval Korean landscape was like. But I can definitely say, yeah, the Mongols were significant in the Southwest and on Jeju. One thing you do mention uh, in your piece 
uh, as well, though, is that, that there appears to be a, an increase in the growth of pine forests, mm -hmm. um, an increasing use of pine as construction material around this time. Um, I guess you don't necessarily attribute this just uh, to the Mon to the arrival of, of the Mongols themselves, um, as though this might be a longer term uh, internal change. But in any case, you mentioned this movement to pine. Uh, you mentioned warfare, um, ecological destruction, shipbuilding, and cultural predisposition as possibilities as motivating factors for this change for this change towards pine. Um, but in your chapter, um, you actually challenged some prevailing assumptions from an old historiography. Reading this, I actually thought there are some lessons for wider environmental historians about changing forestry. Um, could you expand on what the challenges of the old historiography are uh, and why you attribute um, this change towards pine more to certain factors? than to others. Right, right. So, sorry, uh, by, 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 by the challenging the historic do you mean specifically regarding the, 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 the sources of, uh, of, of pine dominance? I think, I, yes. So, what, so the simple way of asking this question would be, why, did, um, why was there a somewhat dramatic shift towards a growth of pine forests as opposed to oak forests, mm. which broadly, I think, coincides with the Mongol invasions? That'd be right, a right. question. This question. Apologies. Oh no, I mean, this. I mean, this is a great question because ultimately, this is this points to again. I think sort of the uh, the blurry aspects of the medieval uh, period in Korean history. We know from the records we have, uh, for example, the the history of the Koida Dynasty, which was compiled in the first decades of the Chosun Dynasty. We know from these sort of records that pine was immensely important in medieval Korea. Pine is associated with founding legends um, of the Kodo dynasty. One of the founders of the Kodo dynasty was famous for planting uh, pines across a hillside um, that overlooked the Kodo capital, uh, Kezong, which is now currently located in North Korea. But uh, supposedly this answered an ancient prophecy that whoever planted pines along this hillside would... Uh, unify the Korean peninsula and set up some great dynasty. Again, these are records that are compiled like in the 15th century, talking about myths that date back to, supposedly date back to the 8th or 9th century. Who knows? But certainly the veracity of these, uh, of, of these uh, stories aside, the, the import, I think, is clear. Pine was immensely important culturally to medieval Koreans. The alternative name for Kezong was uh, was Hongdo, which means the uh, city of pines. That's another great example. And pine was uh, very common in medieval Korean poetry. It's also the most common tree in early modern Joseon poetry. Um, we, 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 I could go on and on, but culturally we know for sure that pine was central to uh, Korean life. But what about the landscape? And again, this is where we, we, we can't really, we you know from architectural records, for instance, of exist extant medieval Korean buildings, um, a lot of them contain quite a lot of pine, especially coming from uh, the 14th century onwards. But the sample size is going to be skewed because while we do have more oak construction in buildings from, say, the pre-13th century, uh, that's going to be skewed by the fact that these are often, uh, these are going to be the few buildings that actually survive. And... Oak can be, in many cases, a far better construction material than pine, especially if you want something to last a very long time. So 
I mean, cannot definitively say when Pine started dominating the Korean landscape, but the Mongols certainly must have accelerated uh, particular patterns, again, especially in the Southwest. Um, by the 15th century, uh, when the Chosen government is starting to launch these surveys, trying to pinpoint parts of Korea that were particularly suitable for, uh, for, 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 for forest protection, um, particularly focusing on areas that are dominant in pine, the Southwest was uh, largely the focus of Korean government uh, operations. And again, I'm going back to not only uh, Mongol origins, but also the fact that this area in particular uh, seemed to be quite conducive to uh, pine growth. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, thank you. All right, in the answer to your previous question, you mentioned how uh, Mongol era policies kind of laid the foundation for the Chozon dynasty's forest protection uh, system, uh, which is the longest uh, in world history. I want to draw attention to the, to the second article uh, under review now, which takes up this kind of history uh, in the 18th century with the development of Kie, which are broadly, which I think can be broadly defined as mutual aid organizations, um, and particularly the emergence of pine protection Kie, uh, which regulated the usage of local pine forests. So we've had this forestry system, uh, state-governed forestry system from the 15th century, then from the 18th century, we have the development of these pine protection kia. Um, what about the 18th century led to the emergence of local pine protection kia uh, at this time, particularly within this longer history of state-level pine administration? All right. So... There's one thing I would like to add uh, before I get into the 18th century, which will help, so help answer your question. but. I guess we have to ask this question now, how did pine continue to dominate the landscape um, all the way dating back to the 13th and 14th centuries? So again, there's numerous factors involved here. Uh, so one thing I forgot to mention is that one reason why the Mongols may have accelerated uh, the dominance of pine in the Southwest, uh, which also again was an area where you do see a lot of these uh, pine protection organizations later. One reason is uh, because again, horses, in particular, tend not to browse on young conifers uh, in terms of their uh, browsing pattern. So it's a phenomenon we see uh, known as pasture pine, very common in eastern North America. Areas that horses have grazed for quite a long period tend to transition toward more dominant dense pine stands, uh, which again, a common feature in eastern North America. And chosen officials in the early, in the early to mid chosen dynasty actually noticed this, that the areas that the Mongols had once established ranches in areas that uh, were had once been pastures were optimal for pine forests. Uh, literally, they found these areas very suitable for pine, and again, suit, in turn, suitable for government protection. So there, there, we see a certain sort of again this long-term uh, Mongol era pattern continuing. Uh, the Chosen Dynasty continued to maintain a lot of these pastures in the southwest and. In turn, uh, these areas, uh, once the horses largely uh, died away and so forth, were no longer used, um, these pine forests continued to be protected. So going into the 18th century, these long-term patterns continue to hold. Um, all of these old Mongol pastures in the Southwest and the South are gone, but in their place, we have these sort of pine dominant stands that are continuously protected by the chosen government. But also in the 18th century, as the Korean population continues to expand, as the economy grew more complex, especially the market economy, the bureaucracy realized its own limits. 
the Korean bureaucracy, like the Chinese bureaucracy, um, while famous for its uh, civil, examination, civil examination system and its sort of supposedly sophisticated Confucian political theories, for all that, it was not actually uh, an extensive bureaucracy in terms of a uh, number of people and so forth. And so the number of actual magistrates, actual uh, bureaucrats, and so forth did not expand greatly over the course of the Chosen Dynasty. And this affected numerous aspects of of uh, the political system, but especially with forestry. So in many cases, the chosen government was trying to get the military, the chosen military, to operate a lot of these forests, especially in the Southwest and the South. Uh, the 18th century was a time of extended peace. And so the military did not have that much to do. So the bright idea was, okay, these naval garrisons in the Southwest, for instance, that have been established to guard against pirates or Japanese invasions, have these soldiers guard these local forests, these pine forests instead. Seems like a good idea, but you can imagine what happens. For a lot of these soldiers, this is sort of a money-making operation, demanding bribes, instance, for, for any peasant trying to use a local forest. Um, uh, Fuelwood smuggling as well became very popular. Um, of soldiers cutting down, military officers and soldiers cutting down these pine trees they're supposed to protect and selling them off to uh, timber merchants, to salt merchants, and so forth, because pine wood was very valuable for burning uh, tidal flats into uh, salt, um, which in turn um, was increasingly valuable in 18th century Korea as, as uh, pickling and, and so forth, and various other uses became more popular. And so this left the situation in a lot of the Southwest and the South where you have local residents very much resenting government intrusion into an extremely important area, the local forests where they gather wood, where they gather critical construction material and so forth. So the establishment of these pine protection gifts in this way coincides with this particular uh, issue, this issue of state intrusion into local forests, and the decreasing government capacity to maintain this forestry system, at least directly. So utilizing local organizations, um, notably this uh, uh, autonomous uh, indigenous Korean form of organization, the so-called Ke, uh, was conducive to actually the long-term sustainability of government forestry operations in the south and the southern part of the Korean peninsula. That's very interesting. It's particularly interesting in that you're noting that there's decreasing government capacities from a central level. But at the same time, uh, in your article, you point to the fact between the 15th and the, the, end, the middle of the 15th and the beginning of the 19th century, there's a roughly 2.5 fold increase in the number of state forests uh, between this period. Yeah, um, yeah. That's a significant growth. So considering that there's kind of um, a lack of bureaucrats, there's there's a the government doesn't have particularly strong central influence. And it has decreasing uh, capacities to manage these manage these forests. What does this expansion of state forests look like? Uh, what institutions, laws, or practices were established that turned non-protected forests into protected ones, particularly in light of this um, weak um, government influence? Yeah, it's actually uh, quite variegated throughout to the Korean Peninsula in terms of as, in terms of as you say what these laws or institutions would have looked like. Um, in the Southwest, 
it would have been the form of, as I mentioned before, these military garrisons, um, soldiers going out and establishing uh, literally so-called restricted forest posts, um, some inscribing um, just the Chinese characters for restricted zone, restricted forest on rocks um, surrounding a local pine forest. And this would sort of establish a boundary of sorts. But you can imagine the issues of forests change over time, um, not just in decades, sometimes a matter of years. And so the boundaries of these pine forests would shift, at least in terms of uh, uh, their ecology, but not in terms of their actual territorial demarcation. So this created numerous issues where peasants would be wandering into a pine forest that they thought was outside the boundaries because they're outside the zones that had been demarcated by the local military. But the soldiers would come out and say, what are you doing cutting down these pine forests? This is all a pine forest zone. Ordinary peasants would have very little recourse but to usually just pay a bribe uh, to the soldier, to the warden, uh, in order to uh, not get uh, beaten up or extorted and so forth. In other parts of Korea, you would have seen something uh, far looser in the areas in the in the what we call uh, the upper Nakdong River Basin. So this is the area in the southeastern Korea, um, roughly coincides with cities such as Tegu and so forth. So the industrial current industrial uh, heartland of Korea, of South Korea, in that area where you had numerous uh, powerful local elites, some um, so-called Korean aristocracy, the Yangban. Uh, in those areas, uh, while the government would demarcate certain pine forests as government forests. In reality, on the ground, the local elites uh, pretty much had full autonomy over uh, these zones and uh, would would not only uh, establish these uh, their own local forestry organizations, their own local pine protection care to protect these forests, but uh, could also uh, do so with very little, well, for the most part, with very little government intrusion. So, uh, so again, just I think shows the example of the, of the variation within this forest system um, in areas like the Southwest. Um, uh, certainly, uh, government intrusion was very heavy, and whereas in the area, some areas, uh, pine these uh, protected pine forests, these government pine forests, were government were government uh, were government forests or state forests only in name, really. If that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, it absolutely does. It also points to one thing that which I probably should have asked you about earlier. Why were they trying to protect these forests? To what yeah. end? But I suppose that's a question for, um, but you can ask that question of several different actors here. Um, local elites, um, the state, but also the people who are putting together the kie, um, or the people who comprise the kie. Um, why were they protecting the forest? What were their motivations? Uh, and what did protection look like? To what ends they think that they were protecting these forests? Right. So initially, the chosen government in the 15th century was, uh, launched this uh, pine protection system. I mean, that's a little, uh, little translation is uh, what they call songchong, which literally means like pine administration. I mean, the system was originally launched in the first decades of the chosen dynasty in the early 15th century uh, for three reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, for warship construction, to, uh, to build warships to protect against pirates that were largely coming in from the Japanese archipelago, but also from the various islands in the southwestern part of Korea. Secondly, uh, for edifice construction, uh, when the Chosun Dynasty was established, the capital was moved from the old Koryo capital of Kezong to uh, present-day Seoul. So that required, of course, an immense uh, construction uh, operation that required a significant amount of timber, as you can imagine. 
And uh, second and thirdly, uh, coffins. Um, the Chosun dynasty is famous for being a, 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 a Confucian dynasty in the sense of it was established by uh, very zealous Confucian scholar officials, many of whom have been influenced by new ideas coming in from Yuan China. And uh, in a sense, uh, this, uh, this uh, zealous uh, Confucianism extended not just to the establishment of a sort of Confucian political or institutional system, but also to culture and basic uh, daily life. And one of these aspects that these officials wanted to change was uh, funerary rituals, basic burial practices. And that meant, basically meant burying your dead parent in a coffin. Uh, which required high quality wood and pine was considered, high quality pine was considered the optimum wood for building these coffins. Um, this is significant, not just in terms of, uh, of, of, of the ecology, but if you think about the broader social implications, uh, one thing the government is trying to do in a sense is move the sort of loci of, uh, of, uh, of, 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 of ancestral veneration from Buddhist temples, which largely you know, ran uh, these sort of funerary services in the medieval era, moving, those, the, 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 moving the center of ancestral veneration of Buddhist temples to a sort of family shrine, right? And it, it has remarkable parallels with what goes on with the Protestant Reformation in Europe in the sense of like no monk should stand between a man and his ancestors um, by directly burying your ancestor in a coffin in your family shrine, it cuts out the middleman and essentially uh, perpetuates this Confucian vision of, uh, of a stable patriarchal family center political order. And for this ambitious plan to succeed, you need reserves of high quality pine timber. So that's the third reason established the best quality pine forests were given a special grade. Uh, it's called Huangjiang. Uh, Huangjiang forests, which basically uh, Huangjiang denoted a uh, highest quality pine that could be utilized for coffins. Initially, it's supposed to be only done by elites, but the practice of uh, spread throughout Korea over the centuries. So by the 17th and 18th centuries, you, you hear reports of whole hillsides covered in these tombs of these tomb mounds as uh, even uh, commoners were trying to uh, replicate and imitate this uh, elite practice of ancestral burial. Mm -hmm. To point to a lot of cultural synergy across class lines um, here in terms of the, 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 the desire to protect um, forests, uh, pine forests for this reason. Just as a final question related to your articles, Ben, could you explain uh, or discuss the relationship between uh, the central state and local Kie. So the central state obviously organized on a state level and Kie organized on a very much more local le level. Um, they seem to have a lot of synergy in terms of cultural motivations for protecting forests. But how, how did the central state and local Kie from an organizational standpoint influence each other? And how are they organized similarly or dissimilarly? So you mean in terms of state level organization versus these local care um, in terms of their organizational uh, uh, apparatus and so forth or personnel or yeah and, and what is the relationship between them actually uh, did, uh, did they in terms of they seem to have a lot of cultural synergy here but in terms of their how do they work together did they did they work together well to what degree was there conflict between state uh, and the conflicts or cooperation between the state and Kiei in terms of why they're why and to what ends they're 
protecting forests. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting in a sense because, you know, I guess we have to go back to thinking about this particularly Korean form of social organization of these care. Uh, and you see similar organizations perhaps in China as well, these sort of, uh, these sort of, autonomous organizations that develop uh, at the, often at the village level to uh, reduce risk, to share money, to uh, help pay for funerals or kids' educations and so forth. In a sense, uh, the pine protection care that proliferate in Southern Korea from the 18th century onward do fall into that vein. But in some ways they don't because they also, as you imply uh, your question, uh, they also have certain conflicts certain tensions that may erupt with the state that, say, a funerary care would not have. Um, a, a, a group of people coming together to pull money to make sure that everyone can bury their dead mother or father, that's not going to have much conflict with the state, one can imagine. But a pine protection care that is established to jealously guard a local forest from neighbors and even local wardens just might. Contrary to my initial assumptions when I started doing this research, it's actually far less conflict than what one might imagine. Um, in many cases, so if we look at some of these charters that these care established, they would talk about local bullies coming into their area and uh, beating up the innocent local populace and taking their money. But the, these local boys are clearly like local military uh, officers, soldiers, and so forth. But they're very diplomatic. They never say uh, that it's the government uh, soldiers that are doing this. They're just, uh, in, when they're trying to justify the establishment of these care to the government, they talk in very, very sort of diplomatic, very uh, performative terms. The first lines of these charters, for instance, are quite uh, instructive. They'll all, they'll, some of them will start with lines like, in the affairs of the state, nothing is more important than protecting pines, which sounds sort of absurd. But again, it is uh, local villagers trying to get the local government to approve an establishment of these particular organizations in almost all cases. I, I don't think there was ever a case where the government uh, 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 did not give approval for the establishment of these K. It wormed the hearts of many chosen magistrates that Oracle people were establishing these organizations, in many ways doing the state's work for them. Also, many local Korean magistrates, uh, government officials had a low opinion of the military as well. Um, this is a sort of common trope within uh, Confucian, uh, about, about Confucianism, you know, the idea that these civil officials look down on military uh, officials and so forth as uncouth and barbaric. And, you know, that, that stereotype is perhaps um, uh, over-perpetuated, over but certainly we see it in documents. And many uh, civil officials readily agreed with local residents that, sure, it'd be better for everyone if the soldiers were uh, not so active in your area. It'd be great if you could maintain these forests yourself as long as you fulfill any sort of quota regarding uh, uh, the uh, shipment of timber, for instance, to the capital, any sort of government order, which in most cases would not be very common, a triennial at the most. Um, and as long as they fulfill these quotas, a lot of these uh, local care could do whatever they wanted with the local forests, as long as they could fulfill these quotas. Um, some of them would even sell off some of the uh, forest land uh, and uh, uh, to 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 other actors, to neighbors, and so forth, and uh, 
which and then the forest would then be uh, reclaimed as farmland and so forth. We even see that happening, and the government would not have any problem with it as long as again the quotas could be fulfilled. This is an absolutely wonderful history, and I do urge all our listeners to uh, follow it up and read uh, Dr. Lee's publications related to it. Um, I now just want to ask you one final question, which I ask all our guests. Um, what are you working on now? I mentioned in the very brief introduction that you're working on a, a monograph. Perhaps you'd like to tell us more about that, or feel free to tell us something about something else you're working on. Well, yeah, I mean, to be to be frank, yeah, I am. I am working on my monograph, which is uh, much of which covers some of the, the topics we've been talking about today. So the book's title is uh, Kingdom of Pines, as you mentioned, um, state forestry in uh, or sh constantly shifting the title these days, but uh, basically a kingdom of pines of, of forests and the state in early modern Korea. And uh, to answer your question uh, in terms of anything new regarding this topic I haven't mentioned, uh, I don't know. It's uh, hard to say. Um, there's many things, uh, far more I could talk about regarding uh, my book. But there's one thing I wanted to add, I guess, I suppose, uh, going back to my original query, then if if if, if the Chosen Dynasty had this uh, amazing forestry system, why did it fall apart in the 19th century? Um, uh, certainly some of your listeners might be curious about this. Uh, if that's the question I originally went into grad school with, uh, have I answered that? Um, uh, and uh, what I can say is uh, two things. First of all, well, the issues with the Chosen Dynasty are only uh, were, 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 were in some ways, many ways contingent, contingent upon certain political actors, certain diplomatic and international affairs in the 1880s, 1890s in particular, that um, one cannot say were necessarily structural. In other words, um, there are aspects of the fall of, of, the, of the rise and fall of nations that don't necessarily need, I think, a broader structural explanation or, or, or do not uh, need to solely be pinned upon a grand structural explanation such as a flood, famine, and deforestation. But secondly, certainly the forestry system was implicated in broader social and economic issues in the 19th century. Um, and this is the chapter I'm working on at the moment, the last chapter in my book. And as you can see, uh, you can probably uh, see from what I've been talking about, uh, local, these local care, they're, they seem quite noble, local people or, uh, organizing their own forestry organizations. But who are they protecting their forests from? Their neighbors? other residents, other villagers. You have groups of Koreans throughout Southern Korea jealously guarding what they consider to be uh, areas where they should have exclusive use of fruct rights. This applied not just to these pine protection camps, but also even to these tombs I mentioned earlier. Um, the, the, the pine groves around these tombs when, when Koreans are burying their ancestors, that was considered the property of the, uh, the descendants uh, of the person buried in that tomb. And this led to numerous lawsuits, numerous conflicts over, over forestry rights as people were started cutting down trees, pine trees that were part of these ancestral groves. Um, we see numerous lawsuits, tensions build up, not, not, not between state and society, but between neighbors, between neighboring families, for instance, over the course of the late Joseph dynasty. And many of these uh, tensions did cross uh, status lines as well. Um, so one can imagine a society where you have increasing tensions, economic and social tensions uh, throughout society in the 19th century, which certainly um, was a major factor in uh, broader issues regarding economic and social dislocation.
It's absolutely fascinating. And I really look forward to reading more when the book uh, makes it out there for us uh, all to read. Um, and thank you for agreeing uh, to this podcast too. Um, I also want to thank um, Sam Glee Riemann for organizing and producing this podcast. Uh, and to, I want to thank the listener, you, uh, for streaming and or downloading. Uh, and once again, my name is Philip Gooding, and this is the Indian Ocean World podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership Appraising Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal.